This is the Drummer's Resource Podcast, session 640. And the quote of the day is, don't rest on your laurels. There's always going to be someone behind you who's better than you. So you need to go out there and keep working. You're listening to the Drummer's Resource Podcast, home of in-depth interviews with the world's greatest drummers, music industry professionals, and thought leaders. Inspiration, education, and motivation for drumming, and beyond, and beyond, and beyond. Hey, what's going on, everybody? Nick Ruffini here, episode 640, and this is a new microphone I'm using. I'm using a new Shure SM7, and I like it so far. So I'd be interested to know what you think about it. I used to use a Yeti Pro, a blue Yeti Pro, and I love that microphone. I recorded probably 500 and maybe 600 of the episodes on that on that microphone uh but this shore one is a lot smaller it's a lot more compact and i don't need the windscreen and all of that so i'd be curious let me know how this sounds compared to uh the other one that i've used in the past and i'm sure justin will give me some feedback on that as well so uh but let's get into this episode this is with craig mcintyre and this is a great episode because Craig has a wide range of experience. He he started his his big break was really with Josh Groban, and he talks about growing with Josh Groban. They started in small theaters all the way up to Madison Square Garden, and he's worked with a slew of other people in between Vertical Horizon, Colby Calais, and now has been with the Goo Goo Dolls for a long time since 2013. So. Uh, a wide range of not only styles, but lived in different places. He was in the Boston area and then he was in LA and now he lives in Portland. So he has a lot of different perspectives of of the music industry and and different styles of music and all those sorts of things. So he's a ton of real world experience that you can take into your world and use as well. So let's get into it with my man, Craig McIntyre. Craig, what's happening, my man? Hello, Nick. How you doing? I'm doing well. How about yourself? Great. Great. So I was just thinking, uh, we, we were talking off air about being in different locations, about, you know, you you uh, were here in LA, now you live in Portland, but you're, I, I would, I you don't consider yourself an East Coaster, right? You're a New Englander, because there's a, there's a difference between the two, but you're, you're originally from New England, though, right? I am, yeah. Uh, basically, Boston area. Um, probably, I mean, at this point, it's almost becoming 50-50 how long I've been in the West Coast or the East Coast. But I always consider the East Coast home because uh, um, I wouldn't say home because I don't even have family left back there. They all mm. moved away too. But but home in the way that, you know, when I grew up, you know, like like those right. those those years of growing up, like the you know, getting into music, uh, becoming a teenager and an adult and, and then, uh, doing music for a living and stuff like that. So it's, mm-hmm. it's kind of that, you know, where you meet your core friends and your, your growing pains kind of. So right. that's why I consider it, but I, I've really, I've been, I've been gone for over 20 years there. And then, I mean, long, I'll, I'll, I'll keep it very short, but you know, my family's from the UK. So I spent mm-hmm. a lot of summers growing up over there and then, my dad had jobs that took him back and forth to Phoenix, to Boston when I was a kid. So there was even, 
you know, I did like six or seven years in Phoenix as a kid. Oh, um, wow. Up, in, up until I was like 11. But I was born in Boston, you know, so um, so I, I do have this kind of back and forth West Coast, East Coast thing. And now mm-hmm. my family all miraculously all moved back to Phoenix when I moved to LA 20 years <laughs> ago. So I haven't had a white Christmas in 20 years. <laughs> but when I talk to people back in the Boston area, they just, they think I was kind of born and raised there and like, you know, I'm always going to be there. And they think I have a million cousins there. And I, oh, when are you coming back? When are you coming? You never come back. And I'm like, well, for what? I have my parents, my brother, and then any relatives I have live in Glasgow. So, gotcha. you know, I'm the only American born in my family, actually. Oh, wow. Um, yeah. So I, my parents have thick Glaswegian accent. And so, but it was great because I got to spend every summer till I was about 15 over there. That's awesome. So, and had an uncle in London. So we just didn't go to Glasgow. We went to London and, you know, I was with my brother and, you know, that's when, and we we're just always obsessed with music. And so we loved going over there to get a different take or mm-hmm. buy, a, buy a different different version of a record that was the British import version we bought over there. So, yeah. you know, like, so, um, you know, so the traveling in general was in my blood. Um mm-hmm. You know, so it made uh, made it easy for me to uh, once I got good enough to to uh, make a living and and travel and mm-hmm. do music. So that you know, that's kind of in my blood. So I'm kind of from a few different places. Even that when makes sense. even when the band tours around, you know, the 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 singers like you know from Glasgow, from Boston, from Phoenix, <laughs> from Portland, from L.A. You know, it's just like they just. I go to all these different things and they see like friends or family, like in these different pockets of all these places I've been around. That's amazing. You know, but, but I think of LA as home in a weird way too. Mm -hmm. Uh, There's, there's not a day that doesn't go by that. I don't talk to somebody from LA. Right. You know, um, right. Because my friends are there or because I'm doing a remote session down there or whatever. It's just Mm -hmm. kind of a, um, and then obviously with social media, you just feel connected to everybody, no matter where sure. they are. Yeah. But, um, <laughs> but Portland, Portland is, uh, it's been five years here and I, I, I love it. I totally love it. And I have a nice community up here. I already knew a couple people here and they made it really easy for me to, to slip. How was, and, how was the transition from in the weather? Um, it wasn't too bad. It was, it was, I wouldn't say it was tougher for my wife, but even though she's the one that really wanted to move here, she was wondering if I was okay because I kept on saying, I never want to go back to shoveling snow. I never want to, you know, these winters, right. I just, you know, but it that, that's not the kind of weather we have up here. Like, mm-hmm. I mean, we might get a dusting of snow like once. It, it's right. So I would just laugh because she would see like a little flurry come in or the weather would start getting around <laughs> 35 degrees. And she she grew up in a tropical climate, you know, and she'd never gotcha. she'd really never seen snow. And uh, oh wow, where's she, she from? Uh, uh, Jakarta, Indonesia. Oh, cool. So she and then she went to school in San Francisco and then moved to L.A. and that's where we met. So she never really experienced that kind of. Um, I mean, maybe she had gone to Big Bear or something and seen snow. I don't know, but right. but uh, really never had that experience in a living situation. So if the weather would start getting a little, you know not even that bad. 
And she'd be, are you okay with this? I know you don't (laughs) want to go back to this. I'm like, no, this is not like Boston where I'm still going to be scraping ice off my car on March 28th. You know, it's not going to be like that. And, uh, and it's not whatsoever. So um, that adjustment was fine. Like I said, I growing up in Boston and then spending time in the UK. I mean, the rain isn't like a big deal. Mm-hmm. Um, there was, it rained, it can rain a little too much in the winter, but I mean, yeah. this summer that just went by, you know, yay, global warming, I guess, but, um, it, uh, <laughs> it was, we went about five months without rain. So it gets very SoCal up here right. for, for half of the year. And it's really not that bad, but I like that. I like the, it's like a mild change of seasons and like, you know, the amount of like you know, long sleeves and coats that I bought when I moved up here. Yeah. yeah, yeah <laughs> and yeah. I was like, oh yeah, man, I get to wear a nice coat now. And <laughs> you know, that kind of thing. So it felt like the world was breathing after, I think in LA a few years ago, I think we went 18 months without rain. I mean, that yeah. was, that was brutal. And mm-hmm. uh, so I, I kind of like some of that, that shift of weather. It just feels like kind of healthier. Yeah. Know? That makes sense. And you know, I don't know what, you know, it just gives you some breath or, Mm-hmm. Feels good on the skin or something, you know. But, um, but I still, I still prefer warmer weather, um, mm-hmm. and consistent weather, you know, because I like to, you know, be outside as much as possible. And so, um, yeah, you're making me miss LA. So, <laughs> like, but well, no, I, the, the, anytime, the, anytime you're here, let me know and, and absolutely I'll take you out to lunch. Absolutely, love to. But um, no, the the adjustment was okay. I was so busy when I moved here mm-hmm. with my band. Uh, I mean, literally, we moved at the end of 2015, and like a week and did Christmas, and then a week later, I was back in LA for like three weeks recording. So I had, and then my band was touring so much and we rehearse in LA and all my equipment is stored in North Hollywood. And, you know, I just, it took me probably two to almost three years to really feel like Portland was home. Meanwhile, my wife's just like having a great time and she's got a million friends now and she's running her own business and doing all this stuff. And like, I'm the one like gone and I'm still like kind of got one foot still in LA. Yeah, and, uh, and so I would go down to LA for a couple of days to do some work. I'm like, "Hey, you want to go to LA?" And because she had, still has tons of friends there, and she's like, "No, I'm good." <laughs> so like, <laughs> I thought we were going to have this kind of back and forth um, LA thing as a couple, you know. But she's like, "No, I'm good." You know, I'm like, "Well, what about your friend here?" And she's like, "No, it's cool." No, she's we're just, good. <laughs> so she's really so she's because she wasn't traveling like I was. She really like she's she's a true Portlander now. Um, so, uh, it, it just took me a few years to, to get into it. And then the pandemic kind of just solidified everyone. Yeah. So I was like, well, this is home. I'm here all the time. So yeah, you're uh, not going anywhere. Yeah. Yeah. So I had that good solid year where I just couldn't, you know, escape it or be in denial of like where my home is, you know? And, And now it's, it's unbelievable here. It's just, my neighborhood is I've never lived in a neighborhood like this before. I mean, all the neighbors just, you know, are real supportive and look out for one another. And that's cool. You know, and that's poli- cool. Politically, we all think the same. And it's just, right. it, but people are just more relaxed too. You know, we, mm-hmm. we lived in a nice neighborhood in LA, but we barely knew our neighbors. It's like there's a very yeah. transient kind of thing. You know, I have neighbors that have lived here for 35, 40 years and, 
and they're just the coolest people and having glasses of wine on their lawn at every Friday at five. And I like <laughs> it's it. just like, I like it. It. that's my style. It's really cool. It's just that you know, nobody's in a rush to get anywhere because it doesn't take you an hour to get anywhere. Right. And, um, so uh, I, it's been warm and fuzzy and Good. Uh, I love it. And like, but you know, I'm still a, you know, a quick plane ride away from where I need to be in LA mm-hmm. sometimes. And, but um, it's great. Think, do you think now, because of because of technology, because of so many remote sessions, that you can build a career living somewhere else? Or do you feel like you have to go to those majors? You have to live in a New York or a Miami or an LA for a little bit of time to sort of build your network and, and start to know the movers and shakers, and then you can move away like you did? I, I think, well, it, it's tough because... I think it it's a question I get a lot and it's a question that okay you're asking somebody who did it a certain way at a certain time right that everything wasn't like this so the the comparison is tricky now what what I learned about living moving to LA was like if you want to start a band that's not necessarily the place to move Mm-hmm. Uh, or New York or Nashville. I don't think it's very bandy kind of thing. Although bands might get kind of successful and then they live there. But I had a couple kind of indie bands in LA when I moved there. And it, I mean, it was hard to build a following. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, and then, you, you know, your friends come down a couple times and then they're sick of it and then they don't come again. And you're playing to this industry crowd or you're just playing to nobody. Um you're just lost in the shuffle. So sometimes it's better to say, if you want to start a band, start a band in Peoria or, you know, somewhere random and then yeah. build, build that, build that presence online. If that's the way people are noticing you now um, to do that. Now that's more of a band situation um, as an individual situation. I would still recommend somebody go to one of the hubs um, mm-hmm. no matter how slick your Instagram is or whatever. Um, because I, I think it's really going to be that word of mouth and it's going to be when you're in the room with other people playing that people are, you know, you might get really lucky if you're just some, you got some certain look and, and you got a great presence and, and likes on Instagram and like you're, there's like a particular thing somebody needs, you know, like a, a, a band that wants this certain look or, or an artist that's just looking, doing a tour and they want everybody to dress a certain way or look at, you know, I mean right. th- that, but that's so random. I mean, that's yeah. so like, and like, rare for sure. Yeah. And, and the, you know, the problem is with, uh, you know, I quote somebody, a, a, a drummer friend, you know, about the Instagram thing or, he was even related to something else, like these jams that happened in LA, but he's like, he goes, yeah, everybody's auditioning for a gig that doesn't exist. And uh, I, th- I thought that was like, that was pretty profound kind of thing to say. I was like, yeah, I know what you mean. You know, and because, so part of it, I would say still move to a hub. But the, the second part of it is like, I, I only know my way. I'm a certain age. I learned, I, I started bands in a garage. Right. I, I learned how to play with other musicians you know, when I was figuring out a song on the drums, there was a guitar player next door. He was trying to figure it out. 
I'm like, hey, I think mm-hmm. the beat goes like this. And he goes, da, 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 da. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I'm playing at the same time as you. We're locking in. Da, 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 da. You know, I didn't really, you know, spend 10 years and then go to a music school, you know, like 10 years solitary and then go to a music school and then meet people. Right. It was all very organic. It was all like, you know, the guy next door, that th- this guy plays this, and then you come over and you make noise. And so um, a lot of trial and error and a lot mm-hmm. of organic kind of garagey kind of stuff. So uh, all these people that are so impressive that li- live somewhere and they have an online presence, I just, I, I'm super impressed by the skills, but I don't know. And I don't want to get on an Instagram rant or something like right. Insta chops or something like that. Cause I think, I think it's really fun to watch that stuff, but um, I just, I'm, it's not till I see people play with other people that I really, you know, care, you know, um, and see how serious they are and see how selfless they are mm-hmm. as, as a musician, you know, like when do you let go of that, that, that selfish kind of thing and just play music. Um, Man, there it's interesting that you bring that up. And I, I, I was actually going to make a post about this on Instagram, uh, funny enough. So Nate Smith was, is playing on Seth Meyers all this week. And they do a episode or they do a, a thing with the guys from Ghostbusters. So it was Dan Aykroyd and and mm. uh who are the other two guys? Uh I don't know why I can't think Her- um, Harold Ramis and uh yeah, the th- the three main guys from from Ghostbusters. Right, right. So, uh, so Bill Murray says, you know, I think it would be a disservice to everyone if we all sat here with this fine drummer Nate Smith over here and we didn't get to hear him do a drum solo while Dan Aykroyd is dancing. <laughs> all right, and and it was kind of like spur of the moment, and they're like, okay, so Nate Smith. This is like the level of professionalism that he has realizes, okay, this is not, I mean, it's about Nate, but it's not about Nate. He lays Mm. down this groove that is a little like, you know, it's a little bit more than just a groove that you would put behind a song, but like it, he lays this thing down so that Bill Murray can dance Mm -hmm. and he plays, everything is like very tasteful and very selfless and not him saying, I'm on national television. This is my chance to like really show off and show everybody all my stuff. Mm-hmm. And he plays, he plays, you know, it's a, it's a 15, 20 second little thing. And when he's done, I looked at it and I was like, that's a professional. Wow. That is wow. someone who is selfless, who is serving the moment. So he knew that they people wanted to see Dan Aykroyd dance, right? So he's not going to do all this choppy, like flying around the kit stuff. And I was so impressed by it that, like, I think that they're that that looking at something like that is, is are things that we should pay attention to more. But I was just completely blown away of the level of professionalism, and it it really stuck out in my mind. Going back to what you're saying about like this you know there's uh this selfless sort of playing and it was the complete opposite of that demonstrated in 15 seconds i love it i i I love that and i'm a huge fan of his and um yeah i mean it's about redefining the word solo it's like when when we're mixing a record and they hey hey solo the drums doesn't Mm -hmm. mean it's a drum solo so i mean you could call something a drum solo but it can still be it doesn't mean it has to be 16th notes and all these chops or flashy right. stuff. You know, it just means that the drum, 
I, I think, you know, a solo can be a breakdown, you know, and, mm-hmm. and probably Nate Smith was kind of thinking like breakdown and stuff, but also, like you said, somebody's dancing, you know, so if you play too many chops, they're going to fall off the dance floor, you know, I right. mean, you, you need that space in the, in the groove for somebody to dance. Cause when you're dancing, you're thinking of, you know, your, your, your bottom part of your body and the high part of your body. You're like, you're like, uh, ah, so kick and snare, you know, it's like, that's the way people move. It's that, it's that quarter note space there that they're right. moving in. So if you throw in too much sauce and uh, sauce is good. I mean, if you throw too much chops in there, um, you know, it's like that, that, that kind of throws you back a little bit, you know? And mm-hmm. so, yeah, it's just a maturity and a professionalism and, and, uh, you know, but I, I love to see, you know, people doing crazy shit too, because they're, they're, they're breaking the rules, you know, they're, they're, they're coming up with new stuff. And eventually a lot of that crazy stuff has, and a lot of it will end up in a musical situation. And right. that's what I say, you know, when I see certain players and they're doing all this fancy stuff, I'm like, do I have any records that have that kind of playing? And I, that's what I kind of say to myself. I'm like, I, I don't know. Like I, I personally don't have records that have it or like the gospel chop kind of thing and stuff like that. Like, I love it. It's impressive, but I don't have any records that sound like that. Like, I don't Mm -hmm. know what, what records do these guys play on? That's what I try to search for. And, and there is some that get through the cracks and they, they, they end up being the guy on the record, but there's also this thing. A lot of records are made with machines and then when it, especially the R&B acts, and then when it comes to something live, they throw a drummer on stage as like a pyrotechnic. (laughs) <laughs> you know, so it's like, well, we're going to use, we're going to use, you know, Nate Smith, we're going to use Steve Jordan, we're going to use Questlove, or we're going to use like hip hop, you know, we're going to use machines. But then when we're doing an app, we need to throw a drummer up there because it's a live body. And then they're just going, it is like a pyrotechnic. It's like another thing. When I would rather just see that drummer kind of emulating more of the uh, the record of just the simple groove and maybe yeah. enhance it a little bit from there. That's why Questlove and Nate Smith is so exciting, you know, because they are still leaving that, that record feel of a track and mm-hmm. not, and not just, you know, how can I throw in all these fills and, and stuff like that, you know? So they just yeah. kind of, they, it's like they amp up that basic feel of the record instead of, some of these guys are just, especially with the the R and B acts. I mean, they're just blowing chops over the 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 track that's there. Yeah, because it looks great on stage, and there's dancers on stage, and all the stuff. And you and a drum set on stage is a very attractive thing to see, and it's up on a riser, and you know, a bunch of cymbals around. It's like when you go to a concert, you see the drum set, mm-hmm. no matter even if it is. R&B, even if the records just have drum machines on them, live, you need to see that physical stuff. Um, but I just, it doesn't always get used in the way that I like it. You know, I think yeah. it's. Um, I, and I, I think well, I, we, we talk about this a lot on the podcast. And, and one of the mi- sort of the misconceptions that I think is that through these conversations that we're saying, you should just be sitting there just playing a simple two and four you know, don't do anything flashy. Don't express yourself. Stay in this box. And that's, uh, I don't want to speak for you, but that's not what I'm saying at all. Right. Not, not and I don't whatsoever. think, and you're not either. Not whatsoever. Uh, I think it's, it's more of 
how can you take the thing, all of these things that that you're learning, and then how can you make them or turn them into a musical setting without just blowing over the singer or or just blowing over the bar and just and you know playing as many notes as possible because you think it's cool because well, well here's another here's another thing that kind of brings this stuff up and and what i've learned is like out of any other instrument drummers are very supportive of one another i have drummer mm-hmm. friends that play speed metal that play jazz that play country you know hip-hop whatever i mean and we're all friends and we all love the drums and uh and what it does. But, you know, there's some people I'm like, wow, I, I don't even think the way that guy does, you know, it's, it's crazy. Like the kind of playing he does, or this friend overplays a little bit or, or this kind of thing, but we're all very supportive of one another, like very, very supportive. And we see the redeeming quality in, in each other, I think. And it's great, you know, cause I have friends that have tons and tons of chops, but they see something in my plan. Not that I don't have chops. I have some, but you know, like, I mean, I just, that's not what I'm known for, but they see something valuable in what I do and whether, whatever it is. Um, and, uh, and I see the same thing in them, but for an example, like there was somebody I knew who I think is a really impressive drummer and he's got, he's very schooled. He's got this stuff going on and I see him play and I come from a, a, if I'm coming from a drum centric point of view, I'm like, I love what that guy does. And I start not thinking about maybe a musician's take on it or a singer's take on it or something like that. So I start seeing all the cool things he can do and how creative he is. And I would like try to get him on gigs and get him on gigs. And like, it just wouldn't work. You know, he Mm -hmm. just wasn't clicking for some reason. And, you know, he had skills that were way beyond mine. And I was like, you know, he's a great guy. And I'm like, why, why isn't this working? And so somebody I knew who, who worked with him and I, and I was building this guy up. I'm like, man, he's like, he's got this going on. He's got, he does this cool stuff. He's got this cool 16th note thing, you know, whatever it was, I was building this guy up and to my friend that had played with him and he didn't seem too psyched about him. And my friend just said to me, he goes, I mean, I was trying to defend this guy to the <laughs> the highest, you know, thing. And my friend just goes, it's got a groove. You know? There it is. That's all it was. You know, it's, it doesn't, didn't matter. And that's why, you know, there's been some some guys on, on all kinds of instruments, but especially drums, you know, where I'm just like, oh, my God. like, Or like if I get a guy to sub for me and he's like way better than me or he's like a big name guy or something and then – I've seen it happen. And mm-hmm. they're like, I'm like, oh, so you care about playing with me anymore? Because you got to play with this guy. And they're like, <laughs> oh, man, you know, it was too much this and too much that. Like you just, you put 10 people in a room and somebody's going to find something wrong with Steve Gadd. I mean, that's just, yeah. that's just That's humans. just the way, that, yeah. Yeah. And, um, but maybe not Steve Gadd, but, you know, like, but uh, uh, I hope not. You, I mean, 50 it, people. If you put it on, I was going to say, if you put it on YouTube, there will definitely be someone. It could be the most yeah. amazing thing anyone's ever seen. And there'll be someone who, you know, says that Steve Gadd sucks. Yeah. Yeah. There's always a, a everybody's trolling, you know, but like, that's, what are you listening to? I know. What are you listening I know. I know. To? What don't you like about this? Yeah. Right. Um, but that. But, but that's a, a posi- the positive thing about that, too, is just thank God that not everybody wants, you know, the best, the guy who's the best at everything. 
because Vinny would have all the gigs, you know? Mm -hmm. So, you know, luckily there's a, I mean, let's talk about Steve Jordan again. I mean, I've been watching a lot of the clips recently of him with the Rolling Stones Mm -hmm. and, uh, and, you know, I, I mean, I put Charlie Watts and Steve Jordan and Ringo and all the classic guys, like all in the same top 10 list, you know, and, Mm -hmm. and, uh, um, and I'm I'm the biggest supporter of Steve Jordan, you know, a big hero of mine. But it's true, like, and he's about as close as it gets to Charlie Watts. Yeah, he's about as close as it gets. And I've been watching the clips, and it's phenomenal what he does and how he's holding that thing together. And he played with Keith for thirty years, and he's part of that family. But there was like times I'm missing Charlie. You know, I'm like, and and it's not like Charlie was like on top of his game over the last 10 years, you know, the playing right. kind of slowed down a little bit and, you know, he's older and stuff like that. And, but there is this quirkiness to it. And even though Steve Jordan probably pound for pound is a better drummer, but there's just, there's a beauty and a chemistry in a band that you just, it's, that's what makes it work. And that's, that always goes back to like, what's best for the band. And, you know, I've done gigs with people that, you know, like songwriters, stuff like that. And then I know the drummer before me was like, didn't have good time or, but they still talk about them in like, a, um, you know, like they still saw this like very musical thing, you mm-hmm. know? And, and they're like, oh, you know, I kind of like when they, they dragged a little bit. I like when they rushed a little bit, like, you know, and we've, we've been, we've been taught our whole life to be like, let's be as solid as a rock. Let's be like the most, you know, on click, you know, as we can and solid as a rock. And then come to find, you know, you do all that work, you become a really proficient drummer at that. And you got good time. You can play with a click and somebody wants the Keith Moon thing all of a sudden, Yeah, (laughs) you know, so um, every situation is so different and, uh, and thank God it is, you know, because then, we're able to experience, you know, if everybody had to be a genius, we never would have had the feel of Charlie Watts in our life or Ringo right. or, you know, if everybody in the Beatles was as talented as Paul McCartney, it wouldn't have worked. You yeah. need you need that shade of, you know, or speaking to Steve Jordan again, like like Keith Richards with the expensive winos, like Keith is like very primitive, very street. And then you had like Wadi Wattel and, and Charlie Drayton and Steve Jordan behind him, these very proficient musicians behind this really raw kind of kind of all over the place kind of thing. And that's what makes it work, you know, mm-hmm. be, because all the greatest bands, you know, I mean, maybe except for Zeppelin and Queen, but most of them have kind of like, you know, the guy that's the real proficient one and then the guy that's a little more street the other guy it's a little more well read and and always that's the chemistry that makes a great band most yeah. su- most super groups don't last you know yeah, that's like, true you know like how many versions of yes in asia are there and so you know or all the 80s like fusion guys that and stuff you know it's like mm-hmm. they make one album and then they're gone it's because they're they're just all so great at their individual thing that maybe there was nothing there to give it that little quirky sauce the way a Ringo could with the Beatles, you know, mm-hmm. um, cause they just didn't use some generic, like polished, like guy from a dance band or something. It's yeah. like, they use this 
kind of street guy and you know and that's so that's really important and i think people are especially when people go to music school and stuff like that they really forget about that aspect um because you know you get so into just being a a a quote unquote you know a good student you know Mm -hmm. like yeah and and doing everything quote unquote right you know and then you're 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 not breaking rules anymore or you're not finding the beauty in uh like like doing recording sessions i love doing recording sessions with people like producers that aren't really musicians because the stuff they'll ask me to do is just so off the wall (laughs) because they're not i'm coming from a well the snare drum does this and the floor tom does this and then i play this way and i play in time and and then they're like hey can you like tap your pinky on this big bass drum and then can you (laughs) rake a brush you know against you know, against the 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 scrape, you know, scrape it against the wall, and then we'll put a ribbon mic on it. I'm like, I would, you know, I'm quirky. I love Keltner. I love Jay Belrose and all these right. guys, but I just wouldn't think that way, you yeah. know. So it takes uh, it takes almost a non, I wouldn't say a non musician, but you know, a non schooled kind of person to really come up with those ideas. I find that mm-hmm. way more with the unschooled musicians than I do with the schooled ones that come up with these quirky ideas that are so musical because they're not so wrapped up in the mechanics of the instrument. They're thinking about sound and they don't yeah. care how you're going to get it. They don't care what kitchen utensil you need to go grab to get it. And yep. uh, that, you know, that's a beautiful thing, you know? So, you know, if musicians just kind of look at all aspects of, and that it's all music, no matter you know, it's just about how somebody gets there. Some guys can read well. Some guys can't read at all. It's just about how you get there. It's about their pace, you know. Mm-hmm. And um, mm-hmm. and so I didn't go to music school. So, um, but it's, so it's I kind of like I the- kind of swim in both worlds a little bit, you know, because I, I I can read and I've been around school musicians my whole life, but I didn't go to right. school. As a musician, podcaster, and now someone who owns a podcast production company, I am no stranger to all of the Focusrite Scarlet interfaces. They've always been top-notch. I use them all the time, and they're fantastic. And this third-generation 18i20 is off the charts. This thing delivers a ton of firepower in an affordable package. It has 18 simultaneous inputs. It has 20 simultaneous outputs, eight mic preamps, dual instrument level inputs, six balance line level inputs. It has eight at IO, Spitify-O, MIDI-IO, and World Clock Out, and a ton of more features. And you can check out all the features by going to Sweetwater.com. Sweetwater is my favorite place to buy gear because they have amazing customer support. They have US-based tech support. They have fast, free shipping. They have sales engineers to make sure you're getting the right product. They're amazing. So learn more about this Focusrite Scarlet 18i20 by going to Sweetwater.com. So you've heard me talk about the Black Panther Design Lab series from Mapex. Let me tell you a little bit about the Artist series. So they have a couple different options, and one of them is the Warbird. This 12 by 5.5 snare is designed by Chris Adler, and it's an optimized version of the original Black Panther model with a unique 12-inch diameter and 100% walnut shell that delivers a dark, biting, and powerful sound. 
These snare drums are amazing. You can check this one out and more by going to mapexdrums.com. You're talking about this now. It's making me think of just the sort of the idea of, okay, learning both sides of this. So how, how can you learn, you know, learning how to write and, and really understanding rhythm and, and being proficient at your instrument, but then allowing yourself to sort of be perfectly imperfect at the same time and, and embracing that quirkiness, as you said, or, or these things that make you, you. And I think that's a really, I think that's a really hard thing to do that. I think that's one of the things that, that holds a lot of people back is they can't break through that wall and just, and to become themselves. Because now I think there's so many people that you, you could put drummer one, drummer two, drummer three, drummer four, and just line them up and have them all play. And I think that everyone sounds the same now. Yeah. Yeah. I, 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 by and large, I agree. Yeah. Well, a lot of it, I mean, I think it's two things. I think it's, um, play, you know, play in a play in an ensemble situation play with other musicians uh and the other thing is to have a massive record collection whether that's on your spotify or physical music um mm-hmm. and then go and see as much music as possible i mean that's if that's still something that people do today or not i don't know um but that's how that's where you know i say got maybe my own sound or personality. Um, But also, you know, I go through those phases of wanting to be, you know, I mean, again, like somebody like Steve Jordan, if I see Steve Jordan play, you know, I want to run home and set up a smaller kit and tighten everything up and, Mm -hmm. you know, (laughs) go to traditional grip. And I'm like, I'm not really good at traditional grip. (laughs) Oh, I don't really like these skinny sticks that he uses. Oh, and then, and then the worst is you go and do a gig that night and you try to adapt that thing and it just doesn't work. Yeah. You know, what's this guy trying to do? And then you realize, you know, and the person that would never want you to sound like Steve Jordan is Steve Jordan, you know, right. like, you know, these kind of people, they know that it's a, it's a, you know, all of a sudden, once you get into a band situation, as much as you sit home and try to sound like emulate somebody else, once you get into that band, that's going to dictate all your influences are going to come into your plane and all your instincts are going to come in and mm-hmm. how you set up your drums and how tight you tune your snare drum. It's like all of a sudden that just, then you're like, wow, I'm a, I'm a, I'm everybody. I'm, I'm, I, I feel all my influences now. And then hopefully that becomes, that all becomes your groove, you know, your, your right. feel and stuff like that. So I don't think you really know until, you're up against it. I've always said the best critics of your playing are other musicians are non-drummers. Mm-hmm. I mean, a, a guitar player and a bass player will tell you really quickly what you're doing wrong. Yeah. And I'll go back to what I said 10 minutes ago about drummers being so supportive of one another. We, 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 I would never walk up to a drummer friend and go, man, that's lame what you're doing. <laughs> you know? Yeah. But yeah. a guitar player will. <laughs> They'd be like, man, stop playing all the bass drum notes. The bass player's got it, man. Just play like yeah. one and three. Like, what are you doing? Why are you trying to play the whole thing? Yeah. You know, I mean, like- and, and, and bass players and guitar players cut down, particularly guitar players. Guitar players all cut each other down. Always. 
But yeah, drummers, that's, that's but drummers are the you know, drummers are the opposite where they every they lift each other up. <laughs> yeah, and it's great. I mean, I really didn't have any drummer friends till I moved to LA, and then they were like, "Yeah, there's a drummer hang happening," and I'm like, "What's that?" <laughs> you know, in, in Boston, it was you know, it was all like you're in your band and and everybody else sucks, you know. Um, it, so it wasn't a very sessiony kind of world, you know. But but uh, LA was like. Yeah, so there's like 20 guys around having coffee and all from different walks of life. And it's like, mm-hmm. I got unbelievable amount of drummer friends now. It's a whole different vibe. And that was something later in life that I really like embraced. I mean, I had one friend I grew up with who played the drums and that's all it was. It was, do you have this Zeppelin bootleg? You know, what about that Black Beauty? I mean, you know, and he's still my best friend today, but that's all I needed as a drummer friend. But I didn't have other people in the business that were drummer friends until right. I moved to LA. And that's uh, interesting. Yeah. And it's a really, um, as you can tell by your podcast and everything's like the community is amazing. You know, it's, mm-hmm. it's incredible. And I, yeah, so many friends and it's gone beyond drumming. You know, I get friends, we just talk about all different stuff about life, you know, and it's like, mm-hmm. well, I just met this guy because he was a metal drummer at a, at a, at a coffee hang in 2003, you know? <laughs> yeah. You know, yeah. it's like, it. it's really, really cool. It's amazing. It always amazes me how many people text me or, or message me or something. And, uh, you know, like professional drummers that, that are, you know, that have serious resumes that listen to the podcast. And I'm like, there, it's just people still trying to get better. Mm-hmm. People still trying to learn more. And, and, and the flip side of that, there's been 638 people who have come on this podcast mm-hmm. and, and they're willing to share their knowledge. Like, yeah, I'll give it. Yeah. Let's just give this knowledge away. You know, I'm not, there's no secrets. I'm not, no one's coming on here saying, well, I'm not going to tell you how I did that thing. I'm not going to tell you how that, yeah. how that thing worked. Yeah. You know? <laughs> no, not at all. I mean, I think we all just, yeah, everybody's looking out for one another and, and uh, we know we can all learn something from each other and, and, uh, you know, the more you learn about music or, or your instrument, the more you find out you don't know, Yeah, you know, the deeper <laughs> you get, you know, there's some people that just live in a very like limited capacity and they're happy and content with that. And, um, that's cool too. But, but yeah, the more you kind of learn, you're like, wow, okay, there's, there's like a whole new world here. You know, I need three yeah. lifetimes to absorb this and that's. <laughs> What it's amazing, you know. I mean, to yeah. to say like that somebody's mastered something is ridiculous. Um, yeah, you know? <laughs> I think it's funny. I mean, like when I was eighteen, I knew everything, and when I was twenty two, I realized <laughs> that I knew absolutely nothing. And I was like, oh my god, how am I? I was how am I even going to learn it? All of this stuff, you know. When eighteen, I was eighteen, I had it mastered though. Yeah, when you don't know anything, I mean, ignorance is bliss, you know, it's like, when you don't know anything. It's like, man, I'm happening. I mean, I thought I was like the happening local drummer, you know, and did a zillion gigs, like never to uh, tracks or machines or something like that. So like mm-hmm. the first time I go into the studio, uh, I mean, I, I was lucky to go in the studio when I was like 15, but we didn't record to a click, but maybe like early 20s, you know, I started doing some recording and I just thought I was badass. And and I remember getting to the chorus of this song. And um and I remember I went to the ride symbol in, in the chorus. And uh and and the song, you know, and I kind of stopped the song and I go, 
hey man, did the click speak? Forget it. Forget it. You know, like I was accusing. The, yeah. I the, think this thing, there's something wrong with this click. <laughs> and it was like, I almost caught myself and I'm just like, all right, man, you got to go yeah. back. Like you got to get the metronome out and know when I go from the hi-hat to the ride symbol, that there's a different sense of gravity in your arm. And like, I rush, I rush if I was going to the ride symbol, you know, hmm. um, just just that kind of, you know, and, but it wasn't that bad. And like playing without a click, probably nobody noticed. It probably just propelled it when it went to ride symbol. But then I noticed, I was like, oh, wow. Like when I get out of that comfort zone, that little, you know, where you're crossed over with the hi-hat and the snare, it's like mm-hmm. you're sitting right there. And then when you move your body to play a floor or a ride or a crash ride or something, you're like, oh, I got to keep that same weight that's that's in that comfortable cross zone like that. So those are the things that, you know, you you just kind of learn at a young age and you're like, mm-hmm. oh man, it's like it kicks you in the ass. So yeah, you think you're happening until you're up against something. Um, and then you can be the most, you, you can be the most rehearsed, dialed in drummer in the world. And then you get on a stage with like shitty monitors and all this stuff's going wrong and the band is weird and you're like, oh man, like then you gotta, you, you gotta be so good that you have what I call damage control. Um, you gotta be prepared for all these obstacles that come to you when you get out of that comfortable rehearsal space where you got everything dialed in. Mm-hmm. You're like, why does my snare drum sound like glass in here? And you know, it's like, <laughs> Oh, you know, my monitors aren't working and, and, and everything's so echoey and, you know, so you really got to be dialed in for those obstacles to hit. And that goes, especially when you're doing it on a professional level, you know, mm-hmm. um, because all the elements are, are, are going to come at you and you're like, oh man, I, you know, or you get a bad monitor mix. You're like, wow, I can't even hear the bass. And I'm like, well, but I do know the song really well and I can play yeah. to the click really well. And then at the end of it, you just listen back to it and you're like, okay, we were okay because we knew where it was. But at rehearsal, you were having a great time and you could hear everything and it sounded like a, a record. And mm-hmm. then live, it's just all this stuff goes crazy and uh, you need to keep your game face on and and know that you're in you're in that spot. You know, yeah. There's times where I'm just like, if I didn't have the click because the, the bass dropped out or the guitar's all over the place. The guitar player to stop playing because he's jumping in the audience or something. I'm like, whoa, <laughs> you know, it's like, you know, so I just, you, you got to hang on to that, that stuff. Um, so you got to be prepared for that. So you're yeah. always, you're always out of a comfort zone, uh, but the better, you know, the more you are rehearsed and and you know where you are, like I'm saying, you're, you're, you're going to land on your feet, but yeah. if you're not, you know, you can't, you can't just wing it up there, you know? Because the winging's <laughs> going to come at you, not the other way around. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, it reinforces the idea of of the only. I mean, sure, you want to be well rehearsed going out, but the only way you really get better at playing live is by playing live. And the I only agree. way you get better at playing with people is playing with people. And I think there's we're we're living, and I don't want to harp on this again, but but I feel like we're living in this world where we're doing a lot of stuff in solitude and then coming into a group setting and it just, it's not working or, and you can't, and people can't figure out why they can't get gigs. And it's like, cause you can't play with other people. Yeah. You're, you're playing, you know, you're playing in your room and 
you know, not playing with records, you're not playing with other people. Like, I mean, going back to your point about playing with records, like I look at that as I get the opportunity to play with, with Keith Richards, or I I get the opportunity to play with Stevie wonder or any of these people because Mm -hmm. I can just play along with them on a record. Yeah. You know, like how, how good, how much better would you be if you were playing with Stevie wonder every night? You know? Right, right. And some of those people do, you know, they do play along to pre-recorded music and and stuff like that, but but they're also maybe showing off over it, you know. Right. And right. I mean, I did, like just the other day I I put on I was trying out these new headphones and I plugged them into my iPhone. I was sitting at the drum kit and I start playing along to something and I started goofing around over it. You know, like I I totally understand it, you know, but if I was if a band was in here, I would play it more like the record I was listening to, you know? Right. So, you know, you just get kind of, you're just warming up. You got these chops and stuff like that. But yeah, I mean, there, there is no substitute for that. And, and can you imagine filming yourself like at 18, like, or even younger, you know, like I'm, I'm going to practice my drums today and I'm going to film it. Right. Right. <laughs> like, that's crazy. <laughs> That's crazy, you know? And then put it out for the whole world to see. Yeah, yeah. I'm working on this lick, you know? I'm like, okay. You know, like, you know, I mean, some people do it where it looks good and it's slick and they they do have it down. But most of my practicing was not to be shared. (laughs) Right. It still isn't, you know? I like, I I want, I want to let loose, you know? And, and, uh, you know, and, you know, once in a while you might, post something or, you know, I'm working on this, you know, but, you know, and some people do it because they're in education or, Mm -hmm. um, but I don't know. It's a mystery. I mean, it's, yeah. I mean, I don't want to go too long on this either, but, um, yeah, it, 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 it's a mystery because I only know to play with other musicians. I, you know, um, I'm at a point where if I'm not going to play with other musicians for whatever reason, for, a bigger pandemic or um, I, I don't know how much I would play the drums, honestly, because the yeah. drums have always been a very ensemble. I'm in a band I'm playing with other people kind of instrument. Not that I mm-hmm. don't love playing it by myself and coming up with new patterns. And it is really fun to do that too, but it, you know, I do play piano too. And you know, I've I've said to my wife and some other people, I'm like, if I, you know, physically can't play the drums in another 20, 30 years or whatever, or if I get injured or, you know, I've said, I'm going to take some proper piano lessons from right. the lady up the street that teaches little kids and learn my scale and read scales and reading a little better because that's an instrument I can play in solitude because it's a percussive instrument and it's fulfilling all this melody and mm-hmm. I, you know, I'll learn some chord, you know, some weird jazzy augmented chord or something. It's like, oh, you know, just the thrill of playing that and having that goosebump from that chord or figuring out, um, you know, a cool song like that. Or, you know, that that's more fulfilling to me as, as a solitary thing than mm-hmm. the, the, you know, not, not to, <laughs> I mean, it's a drum podcast, you know. Um <laughs> But uh, no, I've just always related to drums in a very band uh, setting. And yeah. I, I would always have a drum set. I would always bash away, back, go back to playing records and stuff like that. I just wouldn't put it on Instagram, you know. 
<laughs> there is someone that I that I think you everyone should check out. Um, his name's Willie B, and he's on Instagram. It's just underscore and then Willie W I L L I E and then just the letter B, and he plays along with records, but he play he tries to mimic it exactly how it sounds on the record. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he plays like a bunch of hip hop stuff, and I, I I think it's really really cool. Yeah, really no, cool. I I know some other people that you know, uh, my friend uh, Matt Starr, uh, who goes oh, under yeah, yeah. the the real Matt Starr, not the not the uh, other, not the guy that plays with Ace Freely, and uh, he does this great stuff where he'll literally like take you know a Jeff Picaro part or or a Ringo part or something like that and tell you exactly like the microphones that were being used. And then he'll, he'll find those tracks that the drums aren't in it. And then he'll add the drums in it. I mean, he just did one of American girl, Stan Lynch, Tom Petty. And I swear I was listening to the record. He's like, Oh no, really? that's the, that's the drums taken out. And he just like had the snare tune the same way in the kick drum. And you know, if it was a, he would study it if it was the kick drum with the front head off and, really phenomenal it's really and then I mean, he did a ringo one too i think he did like lovely rita and he said you know this is the they had the drums to the fair child and it was like oh my god it just sounds just like it you know <laughs> huh. so those are I'm cool gonna to, i'm gonna have to check him out yeah so it's the the real matt star yeah nice and, uh, he plays with like plays with like chris shiflett from the foo fighters and he's played with a bunch of different people but um cool but uh, yeah, and then there's the other Matt Star too. It's just like awesome, you know. It's like great, right. like hard hard rock player and stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, huh. Yeah, I think they have a weird uh, <laughs> thing. Like the wrong guy gets called for this and that. I know? would imagine. <laughs> yeah, I mean, is like the they're the exact and and both of them are in L.A. Uh, I think so. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yep. And uh, yeah, there was nice. a bass player like that. There was a there was two Dave Carpenters that were in L.A. too. <laughs> There's one that plays with like Roger Hoskin from Supertramp, and then it was another guy who sadly might have passed away, but he was like an upright jazz guy. But that was they had the same exact name. They both played the same instrument. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it must be really confusing. You know, there was a, uh, a or there's a buddy by uh, James Wormworth and his dad's Jimmy Wormworth, who's a, a great jazz drummer from yeah, New York, yeah. and uh, Conan O'Brien. Uh, yeah, James was James was on Conan. Yeah, and his, so his dad or he got a call and was like, "Hey, do you want to do this gig?" And he's like, "Sure." And he shows up and he's like, "All these dudes are like in their seventies," and he was like twenty five at the time or something. And he was like, "How'd you get my number?" And they were like, "Who are you?" And they're like, "He's like, I'm I'm you know I'm James." And he was like, "No, no, no, we were looking for somebody else." And he was like, "Oh, you were looking for my dad." <laughs> so they meant to call his dad. They called him. He played the gig anyway, and. uh but but he was like he, people used to call him all the time. They'd be like Jimmy. He'd be like, "This is James." <laughs> <laughs> so he's a, he, that used to happen to him all the time. Two, you know, same name, both played drums. <laughs> I know that Nathan East has a brother in San Diego, and like sometimes people would show up to gigs, and it was like, "Well, his brother's there." Like he would just he would give the gig to his brother, but wouldn't tell anybody. <laughs> We're like, "Hey, where's Nathan?" Uh, well, James's brother's here. <laughs> we got him, and he's great too. <laughs> Hey, that works. They wouldn't even know. <laughs> <laughs> I like it. Uh, so tell me about tell me about how you built your career. I mean, I know that you were you were playing um, like you know you were doing bands and things like that in the New England area, and then eventually moved out here. But how did you really break into the scene and 
and get your foot in the door because I think that's that's half the battle. Like it's kind of like I always talk about being backstage, right? And if like if you sneak backstage, once you have a beer in your hand, you belong, right? And they're not going to kick you out after that. So uh, I look at it like that the same way as here. It's like once you make a couple connections, once you're in, you're in. But but you have to break in. You mean somehow. you mean by the time I got to LA? Yeah. Well, um, I was lucky. You know, I, I I wasn't that young when I moved to LA, so I had a good ten years under at least ten years underneath me in the Boston area, and uh, so I had played with some semi touring acts and had recorded a little bit and stuff like that. So I I kind of had you know I was making a living there. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it's not the same as breaking into a, a hub, you know, like Nashville or LA, obviously. But, um, I was lucky that basically what happened was I was doing all this stuff in Boston and I was putting all these eggs in all these different baskets, just trying to hopefully something would take off and become more of a, a nationwide thing. And, um, so, you know, what? There was various acts. I was playing guitar instrumental stuff. I was playing a blues thing. I was playing in a country rock band. I was playing uh, with a punk artist who used to be in the Dropkick Murphys. Like I was literally like seven days a week. I was like being very schizophrenic with the music and uh, trying to just juggle as much as I could and still like scraping the rent. And uh, it got to a point where a couple bass players that I worked with – in Boston, um, ended up moving to LA. And so this is like early 2001. And one of my best friends is a bass player, Sean Hurley. And Mm -hmm. he, um, who's, you know, unbelievable, you know, and just like one of the best bass players out there uh, on the scene and, uh, doing every record imaginable. So we were lucky. We, we, we met each other, um, recording actually in a recording studio in Boston and just did a bunch of stuff together. And, uh, and then he got the vertical horizon gig, um, Mm. vertical horizon. The leader of the band, Matt was actually from Worcester where I'm from, but I didn't know him, but there was all these like two degrees of separation. So he gets this gig and then they take off and then, um, he meets his now wife while torn in LA. And then he's like, then between that and then the producer that him and I were working with in Boston ended up staying in LA for a while, working with Robin Thicke when he was getting his career going. So there was these little branches going out to LA, but I still didn't think about moving out there. And mm-hmm. then, so he said, why don't you come and visit? So in early 2001, I went out and just hung out with him for like a week and it was really fun, but I still didn't think about it because I had so much going on in Boston and a relationship and I bought a house down the Cape and I'd, I was just like, I'm a Boston guy forever. So, um, but I was like really excited for my friends that were getting like this kind of, you know, like I remember like first time my friend was on David Letterman's like, a big, you know, and then 20 years yeah. later, it's like, I don't even know who's on what TV show because I know enough people that are in the business, but, you know, it was, uh, so I went out there and hung with him. And I had another friend who was there, but we weren't as close at the time. So I didn't even look him up when I was out there. So a few months go by, several months go by. And this other friend who's a bass player as well, Eric Holden, um, who we played with 
in Boston as well. And he moved out there after Berkeley. He calls me and he goes, hey, I bumped into Sean. They were like borrowing a base from one another or something. And he said, you're thinking about moving out here. And I'm like, I never said that. <laughs> and then he goes, well, you know, I have a room here in Silver Lake. And, uh, you know, just let me know when you can get out here. I'll hold on to it till you can get out here. And then all of a sudden, just these like huge stars just went up. I was like, whoa. And this is like, hmm. I had just left this like gig that was like really killing my soul. My relationship had broken up, you know, and then I said, yeah, I'm going to do it. And then 9-11 happened. <laughs> and then I'm like, all right. Okay. I'm scared. Cause I was scheduled to move in October. I'm like, okay, I'm going to go all the way across the country from everybody I know and love to get better gigs so I can fly on airplanes. Like it didn't sound like <laughs> being a musician was pretty trivial for a, a few weeks there. And right. uh, for me, you know, and I couldn't even listen to music, you know, it was such a terrible time, but yeah, but a month went by and then I said, I'm going to do it. going to do it. And uh, so I moved out there like late 2001 so, I mean, to make a long story uh, shorter, hopefully, knowing those two bass players, um, you know, one being my roommate and then one being uh, Sean, who was already in a successful band. And then now he's like, you know, bass player to the stars. It's like, well, both of them are, both of them play with huge people. Um just knowing those two people really opened up all the doors. I don't know what would have happened if I didn't know anybody when I got to LA. I have no idea. Um, so it was one of those things like I knew those guys, but I still didn't feel like I had shortcuts. I still felt like I was starting over. I was proving mm -hmm. myself, you know, you know, they had a little more insight to certain things, but I still had to go. I mean, some of the early gigs I did in LA were, I mean, just horrible. I just wanted to go crawling back to Boston. You know, it's like, oh yeah. man, this is like, I never imagined I would do worse gigs out here than I did <laughs> somewhere in a non, non, you know, music, not non-musical, but non-industry kind of place. I thought everybody right. out here was just going to be so great and I was going to be intimidated. And then, you know, I'm doing a gig, a cover gig playing brown eyed girl with a guy that drives a cab or something, you know, it's a, just, yeah, just some of the weirdest gigs, you know, that, that, that came my way and, and, uh, the money sucked. And, um, so I, I kind of kicked around, uh, for a while. And, um, there was a guy I worked with in Boston who had just moved to LA. He was like a blues producer and he was producing this guy out of San Diego so this guy calls me like January 2nd um, of 2002 when I'm almost ready to just go back to Boston, you know, <laughs> mm -hmm. and, uh, and I've like exhaust, I've run out of all the money that, that I had just to live in LA for a couple months. I was already totally broke All of the money I saved up or, you know, or whatever. And uh, I was like, oh man, what's going to happen? And this guy literally called me on when I got home from Christmas from Boston and he's like, yeah, man, he's like, if you can come down to San Diego every weekend, I have like a steady, like two or three night gig for you. So hmm. that was, so that kind of kept me afloat. And then my roommate, he was in this band, this indie rock band, and they had just fired their drummer. And I really loved the music. 
And he said, hey, this is an indie rock band, but there's some financing behind it. And we basically just rehearse and we get paid to rehearse. <laughs> not a so, bad gig. Not a bad gig at all. And I love the music. And uh, so we would just rehearse once or twice a week. And then during the week, and then uh, on the weekends, I would make these journeys down to San Diego. And and uh, so this band didn't play at all. Uh, we did. We ended up doing some showcasing, but gotcha. Yeah, and then uh, and then my friend Sean, um, Sean Hurley, he he knew these other guys that were starting this band, and I said, "You want to be in another band?" He's like, "Oh yeah, why not?" You know. So we did this other project um, for a while. And that was kind of the same thing. There was there was some like financial backing to it, you know. I mean, LA is the home of vanity projects. Yeah. <laughs> or sure. somebody said the lifeblood of our industry. Um so I had those two indie rock things going, and we would just showcase hotel cafe and you know, places and uh once in a while and and then um but uh and then you know, trying to get a record deal and I learned a lot. There was all, you know, a lot of schmoozing and stuff like that. But, um, and then, uh, and then I had the, that San Diego gig that was just, it was just steady money, you know, make a few hundred bucks. And, uh, and I was sharing an apartment, so it wasn't that bad. And this is 20 years ago. It wasn't horrible. And, um, then it just, then, uh, my friend Eric, who I lived with, he started playing, um, through, through, Degrees of separation that people he knew at Berkeley, um, he ended up getting an opportunity to work with Josh Groban. Now, Josh Groban wasn't even a thing yet. Um, he was just putting out his first record. Yeah, I think he had been on a TV show, but he wasn't really mm-hmm. like this live proven act. And uh, nobody really knew who he was. But Eric was kind of doing these like newer, the, these kind of like local showcases with him. And there wasn't really like a permanent band put together and they would have like, you know, the best of the best, like J.R. Robinson and people like this, like doing these one-off gigs. And he he would just sing a few songs. They were just, it was all like a big machine behind it and David Foster and Warner brothers. And they were just trying to get this kid off the ground. And um, so finally he had did the first record and it was a huge success, but he hadn't toured. He hadn't done like a full show or anything like that. And it was a huge thing. And then, Eric was still involved in it, and he said they're going to be auditioning drummers. So by then, I had been in LA for a year and a half, two years um, mm-hmm. by this time, and making enough to pay the rent. But you know, I wasn't I wasn't on that like big gig or anything like that. So I auditioned for the gig, and and I got it. Um, there was a lot of really great player, big name players at the audition, but I think I just needed it more than anybody else. So I really worked my ass off and did my homework. So so was it a cattle call or was it? It wasn't a cattle call. There was like five or six handpicked people. Gotcha. And I've told this story before, but really quick, and this is before YouTube, but I had the advantage of knowing the bass player, obviously. Mm -hmm. And, and, if anybody's familiar with Josh Groban, it's, I don't even know. I played with him for almost 10 years. I still can't describe his music, you know, and that's yeah. not a, that's not a diss at all. And I, he's a wonderful guy. He's a phenomenal uh, guy and he changed my life, but um, I still don't understand the music. You know, I, I don't know what it is. Like it's not rock. It's not classical. It's not jazz. It's, it's its own thing. 
And mm-hmm. um, so, and then this first record was very like drum machine-y or kind of just lush. And I'm like, I, I don't understand. Like, what does a drummer even do on this? You know? Because <laughs> it's like, it's very orchestral. So the, the strings are really drowning out what emulates a drum groove and stuff like that. And it was very like, I don't know, it's it, it, almost like a new agey kind of recording. And I'm like, well, what do I do with my four-piece Yamaha kit? You know, <laughs> and yeah. uh, um, so you know, and I wasn't a great reader then or anything like that. And I was like, yeah, I, I need to learn this stuff like by heart, you know. And and all the tempos they speed up and slow down. It's like it's all on this tempo map. It's very, it's it's <laughs> a manned gig. It really is. Right, right. And uh, so. And I was, you know, very unfamiliar. I'd never been on stage with a French horn before. You know, like I didn't, I didn't know how to like an orchestra. Like I never took band in high school or anything like that. So I was like, oh my god, you know, there's only one guitar on the gig. I don't know what's. <laughs> so, um, I, uh, so I, so luckily, luckily, my friend Eric said, hey, look, we just did a PBS special, and Jr. played drums, and. Uh, he goes, I'll get some footage of that special because it's not out yet. Mm-hmm. So he was able to get this footage and I watched it and I was like, that's it. JR just like, he didn't even care about the drum sequencing. He just played big fat pocket over everything. Huh? I'm like, oh, I get it. I get Because he's the- So he's, did you, you got this footage after you got the gig? No, I got it before Beforehand. the audition. Oh, there was like a oh. week there, but they had already done the PBS special. And then that was going to be the thing that launched Joss. But JR wasn't going to, they couldn't afford him. He wasn't going to go on the road with them. Mm-hmm. So they had most of the band intact, but they needed a, a drummer to play live. So that that door was open because it was all produced by David Foster. And he was obviously going to bring JR for this TV special to make sure, you know, it, it's going to be the best it can be. Uh, and, um, so I was, I was able to watch the JR footage, and I thought to myself, "Well, that's the last impression that Josh has a, as a of a drummer." So when I went to the audition, I just said, "I'm just going to approach this like JR." Now the other guys didn't have access to that footage; they had just been listening to the record, so they had the record, and then they had charts like a master rhythm mm-hmm. chart, and. They went, and I was listening to Weird SIR, and I was listening to some of them outside. I mean, I'm talking like some pretty big name guys, like guys you hear about in Modern Drummer and stuff like that. So I'm like kind of right. pretty intimidated and shaken. And, and I'm listening to them, and I'm like, wow, they're really playing that timid. You know, they're, they're kind of, it's kind of almost like starting to drag a little bit. And, and uh, so they're just kind of reading the chart, just, you know, they're not really. I wouldn't say they just, they weren't really emotionally inside the music because I don't think they were really that familiar with it. And some of them probably just thought, ah, oh, it's just another audition. I'm not going to work too hard on it. Right. So having that access to JR, having his stamp on it, I said, I'm just going to go. I don't know if this is still what Josh wants, but it makes a lot more sense to me listening to a guy who is, you know, a massive idol you know and and just the way he plays and he's just got this authority to the way he plays i'm like i'm going at it like that <laughs> so <laughs> you know and i'm hearing all these other guys kind of they're almost trying to play like the sequencing at the audition so it's like right. sequencing might have been like 
So they're playing kind of sixteenths and kind of side stick and you know, and that's what I thought it was going to be. But once I when I lucky enough to see the Jr. stuff, he let the sequencing play, and he played like cashmere over it. You know, he just went <laughs> boom to God to boom, and I was like, all right, I can do that. And uh, so I went in the audition, and I didn't need the chart or anything. I was I like really you know obsessed with it, and that's what I mean. I I think. I wasn't better than these drummers. I think I just wanted that gig so bad and needed a gig. These guys probably had another gig to go to after the audition. I didn't have anything, you know? Right, right, right. And, uh, or a two-hour drive to San Diego to play shuffles. So I was like, I was ready. <laughs> I was hungry. And I didn't even know the music. I just knew that my friend was in the gig and I knew that there was some backing and it looked like it was going to take off. And I was like, I was ready for anything. And um, so I went in there. <laughs> I went in there and... Um, played in a more JR kind of way. And then after it, Josh goes, man, you're, you're a rock drummer. <laughs> and, <laughs> and I thought that that's my ass out the door right there. <laughs> you know, I thought like, you know, he was, it was like, it was such a pigeonhole comment to say to somebody. And, uh, and then he goes, yeah, man, that's what I need. You know, he's huh. like, a 20-piece orchestra is as loud as a Marshall stack. And I'm like, you're a pretty smart guy. Yeah. <laughs> so he wanted a big a, a big two and four. You know, he wanted that, you know, play. Because the music's very dramatic. So he wanted it to be big and pockety. Um, and he was, you know, he ended up playing massive rooms, you know. And yeah. so it kind of worked. It wasn't like little cocktail lounge. I mean, it was the staple center. It was so, you know, it was, it was kind of soon, soon to be the, uh, the crypto.com center. Cause that's a better yeah. name. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, go ahead. Sorry. I in, in, Pro you. in Providence, we had the Dunkin' Donuts arena. So that takes it all. But yeah, um, there you go. <laughs> um, and it's as stale as the donuts, believe me. And, um, <laughs> yeah, so that, that was kind of my first huge break in LA. Mm -hmm. um, was that, and what was exciting about that gig is, um, is watching this ascend, the uh, ascent, is that what you say? This, um, sure. You know, yeah, <laughs> there's no grammar today. Um, yeah. Craig, this is a drumming podcast. I know, okay? I know. What don't, do I think? Yeah. <laughs> don't, put me, don't put me on the hot seat here. I'm, I'm just here to trying not to, hot seat. I'm just trying not to say, uh, uh, like this, like that, like that. You know, it's like <laughs> right. when you hear yourself back on a phone call or a podcast, you're like, wow, I so say do like. Do I really sound like that? I say like, like a girl from the valley. Yeah, so like yeah. this, like that. Um, yeah. So um, it was exciting to see, to be part of something that was, I wasn't joining that gig after it was a big gig. I was, right. I did the first real 90 minute show that he ever sang to the point where, we didn't even know if he could get through the show because mm. he had never sang. I mean, the way he sings, it's so intense. It's all yeah. this, you know, huge high notes and this operatic thing. And we, you know, we were up till dress rehearsal and being like, is he going to be able to get through it? I mean, I mean, he's <laughs> young and physically like uh, it wasn't that. It was just that kind of singing. He'd never really done that for that long a whole period and running around the stage and stuff like that. So it was right. very exciting to be a part of, you know, we started playing theaters and still pretty big theaters. And within six months, we're like at Madison square garden and like, 
So for me, it was so exciting um, to to see something just take off, like the fever um, of something. So, you know, I'd never been a part of that. I mean, most big things I've done before since that were were already like established, you know, they were already, mm-hmm. or I was the second drummer with an established artist or something like that. So to see right. that, to be a part of that, you know, of the first for him were first for me. Um, it's like, wow, we're playing this, we're playing Red Rocks tonight, you know? And I mean, that guy had never even played a, a bar in his life, you know? Right. Yeah. That's uh, crazy. Yeah. I mean, he just went from like music school to like David Foster calling his, uh, um, vocal coach in 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 Hancock Park, and hey, you know anybody? I got this thing hmm. on the on the Olympics or something. Yeah, there's this young kid. He's really good. He's 19. You know, I mean, it wow. was just like he just walked into like this massive world. While the rest of us in this band, you know, had been playing bars for 15 years. You know, mm-hmm. and uh, so you know we you know we we're backstage in Madison square garden, looking at pictures of Mick and Robert plant and stuff like that. We're, our dreams are there, you know? Yeah. <laughs> and uh, we're like, Oh, this is so exciting for him. You know, I don't know. He didn't, he, I don't know if he, I mean, of course he was super excited and he's huge and stuff like that. But for us, it came from a different, from a gigging musician, you know, watching rock concerts our whole life and, videos and and you know movies and stuff like that you know so to to be a to be in those you know we were just more sentimental about that kind of success you know mm-hmm. for him it was he was just shot out of a cannon you know and uh yeah with not, not yeah like you said not a lot of gradual you know just like like here you are you're 21 22 and you know yeah, doing two wild. nights at the that's, staples center or something it's like what? that's so wild yeah where it's like oh man you like you know, you, you never had to play Mustang Sally? Like, what? <laughs> like, how did, how'd you get here that way? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That's um, amazing. So that was, that that gig, I, I mean, that gig was life-changing for me. And, uh, um, but I wouldn't say, I wouldn't, you know, when you're asking about breaking into the career, break, breaking, in, breaking into the scene and stuff like that. I still had to do a lot of breaking, I felt, even though I had that gig. But you got to understand that gig is like very insulated. It's a big gig, mm-hmm. but it's not, you know, I play rock and roll and it's not a rock and roll gig. Um, right. So I had to really still, you know, go out and do every $50 gig or, uh, you know, work with all these different people. I almost had to kind of overshadow that in a way. like. I had to prove to people that that's not what I do, um, that that's only a portion of what I do. And most people out there didn't even understand Josh. They thought he was just like a mellow crooner. They didn't know that I was busting a pretty good sweat up on stage. You know, the music yeah. was very exciting and dramatic. And, um, you know, so it wasn't, I wasn't just sitting there in a tuxedo and brushes. You know, mm-hmm. it was a, and that would be challenging too, but I don't fault that at all. But it wasn't what people thought it was. Uh, I was still getting to be me. I was still getting to rock out and, and uh, you know, it just to be an all-around drummer. And But I still had to, you know how it is with different scenes and, you know, I still had to go and, um, you know, almost prove myself to other people. And uh, mm-hmm. I didn't, so that gig really didn't lead to 
you know, it wasn't like, oh, you're on this gig. So now you're going to be on this gig or this. Right. I learned that stuff really fast. And not that I had an agenda of that kind, but it wasn't like, like modern drummer didn't come to me. I still got to contact them if I want an article. Um, right. Endorsements, you know, I mean, some stuff came organically, but some stuff was like, no, I, I still have to be the hustler in getting the next gig, getting the endorsements or whatever it is. Um, so you're never, the hustle kind of never stops. It's just about how you want to do it. Right. Um, so, but it was life-changing and it definitely, the, the core of band, the, the, the band uh, in general that was under that umbrella are still some of my best friends today. So I guess that would have been a scene in a way that we ended up doing a bunch of different projects together and sessions together. So I did get a lot out of that gig. I just didn't get like the next big gig through that. It wasn't like, oh, you play with him. So now you're going to play with a, a, you're going to make a lateral move over here and play with this other artist that's similar or something. Right. And that's what I mean. It was such an insulated gig. It was so different from everything else that I did. And it was so different from everything else in the music industry in general that I kind of did kind of go back in the trenches and uh, just say, man, I just, you know, I just got off the plane playing these same 15 songs for six months. I need to go play something different. And I was happy to do it. And uh, it wasn't like, oh, I'm tired from being on the road or, you know, I just played these big venues. It's like, no, it's like I, people thought I was crazy. You know, some guys in the band would just be like, I'm going to hibernate for a month. I'm like, no, I'm, I'm going out tonight and I'm going to go play whatever, you know, yeah. uh, singer, songwriter, music or anything, or just go to a jam. And so I think having that security of that big gig actually made me more ambitious in a way, not like being content. Yeah. Um, it, Cause that's, that's an easy thing to do, right. Is, is to, to get content with it. Think the gig's never going to end. Think that you're set now and, and you know, other gigs are just going to come along. I, I applaud you for going out and, and hustling to get more gigs because you know, as well as anyone, every gig ends. It all ends. That, that was it exactly. Yeah. And I, and I always say there was probably, I think there was like a very short period of time that once we got on that bus and I had a an itinerary that was a year full of good gigs and I had a, a good paycheck coming, I think there was maybe six weeks maybe that I just said, you know what? I'm gonna chill. I'm yeah. gonna I'm gonna live in this moment. Um and and I'm not gonna take every call. Not going to take every $50 gig that comes down the road because I'm just, I was just a yes man my whole life because for survival sakes, not because yeah. not, not, I didn't think I was a mercenary or selfish with money or something like that. I just, you know, I've just always been like, you just never know where that crappy gig is going to lead to you. And I was, mm -hmm. so I just say, yes, I'll do that. Yes. Yes. I'll do this church gig. Yes. I'll do this, whatever. And for a couple months, maybe I just, I, and I still was nice enough and returned calls. You know, I still wasn't like right. blowing people off, but it was my own little like thing to be, all right, I just need a break from the hustle, from the grind. Um, I should really enjoy this because this might be the only time that I, that I get to do this, that I, that mm -hmm. I have the comfort and the security of a, 
you know, of like maybe six months of work ahead of me. Yeah. Um, and uh, I think everybody should enjoy that if they get an opportunity, if they, they get like a three month tour and they're making great money, like just enjoy, just be there for the gig, you know, and, mm-hmm. and enjoy it. And don't worry about, well, we're flying home for two days. And I'm going to cram in every bar gig I can, you know, right? like definitely enjoy it. And I, 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 the older I get, the more I enjoy when I have a good amount of work ahead of me and stuff. And I try to focus and be in the moment of that gig. But, um, yeah, but yeah, like <laughs> that, when I first did that and I first got going with him and on the bus and everything that, that didn't last too long, Well, that might've, because even if the gig is successful, you're still musically going to be itching to do other stuff. I mean, there's, yeah, of course. You know, there's 20,000 songs in your, on your, uh, on your phone, your iPad or what iPod or whatever. It's like, you like lots of different music. We need to play different styles of music. And, um, and I had played so many different styles up to then that no one style seems to satisfy me. Um, mm-hmm. so I'm always itching to do other stuff. And, uh, and yeah, like I said, having, having a successful gig made me, uh, was like you said, it, 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 it was that thing that I wanted to, you know, I wanted to do more. I wanted to, you know, have that security. Hey, the bills are paid. This is when I should go out and network because I'm not, I don't look like Joe desperate. Yep. You know, I'm yep. actually yep. like just going out, enjoying my friends play. I got a story to tell. Hey, man, I've been doing this, been doing this. That's when you go out and do the schmooze more right. than ever because it become it's more natural. It's not, like I said, it's not desperate. It's mm-hmm. not just scraping for scraps. You're just like, yeah, man, I'm cool. Yeah. yeah. I, 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 I had a great time out tonight. And then- a year later, somebody calls you. Hey, remember we were hanging out in Hotel Cafe, man? Hey, you said you, I know you really like that Elliot Smith record, you know, or just something, you just had something yeah. in common. Yep. And then you're just on their radar and you're like, hey, mm-hmm. man, I got this session. I remember you're really into Tom Waits or something. You know, it was like, yeah. it'd be kind of like that, you know? I'm like, okay. That was just like a simple conversation over a beer. That happens all um, the time, too. It happens you know all the time. As well as I do, yeah. But how, go ahead. But you can tell the guys that, are out just to like, like I said, they're auditioning for a gig that doesn't exist, you know? <laughs> yeah, exactly. How did you, I, and there's been a lot of work between Josh Groban. I mean, you worked with, you know, you were with Vertical Horizon for a while and work with uh, Adina Menzel and, and Colby Calais and, and others. But then you randomly just get this call out of the blue in 2013 to join Goo Goo Dolls. How does that even, how does that even happen? So, um, yeah, I didn't. I, I was always a big fan, um, but didn't know. I knew the guitar player, the second guitar player. Um, uh, I'd known him for a long time. We had done a couple sessions. We had a few friends in common, and uh, he'd been on the gig for quite a while. I maybe met him in 2002. He'd been on the gig since like 2006. And we would bump into one another. We're always kind of friends, but you know, not super close, but we're always in some of the same circles. And uh, so I got a call out of the blue, I mean, completely out of the blue. And he said, um, he said, Hey man, you know, I'm still doing that Goo Goo Dolls gig. And I said, yeah, man, you've been doing that a long time. And he goes, yeah, they, they need a sub um, to the drummers uh, taking time off or his wife's pregnant. And, uh, 
I said, man, I'd love to do it, but I couldn't do it at the time. Uh, I was working with this this actress girl um, in Nashville and trying to get a uh, her music career going. Because I didn't, it wasn't a full time gig. It was just a couple subbing things, so I didn't really think much of it. And uh, and and it was like I would have to learn like thirty five songs for two gigs. And uh, and if I wasn't doing anything, I would have done it in a heartbeat. But um, it wasn't a full time gig, so I didn't think much of it. You know. And right, uh, right. So this is like late two thousand thirteen, and then and then Christmas rolls around. I'm in Phoenix at my mom's house, and. Uh, and and my my friend from that band like calls me. I'm like, musicians don't call each other on Christmas. <laughs> like 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 why is he? It was really weird, you know. It wasn't it wasn't that kind of friend that you just wish every holiday with, you know. And um, so he calls me. He goes, "Hey man, are you still interested in that gig?" And I had known they already did, they already the subbing gigs already went away. They already mm-hmm. they already had those. They already used somebody else for those. And I said, what do you mean? You know, I said, is the drummer like taking more time off or are they, you know, is he just, or is there corporate gigs he doesn't want to do and just do do the real gig? I don't know what it was, you know? He goes, no, man. He's like, they parted ways with him. So it's a full-time gig. And I said, Mm. oh, okay. I said, yeah, I'd love to. I said, but don't these guys want to meet me? He goes, (laughs) he goes, no, they know, they they know who you are. They've been checking you out. It's all cool. I'm like, what? <laughs> I said, well, they're not doing auditions, right? And he said, no, they're not going to do that. He's like, it, it's great, man. It's like, it's your gig. But it was still like two or three weeks away till I was actually even going to be in a room and meet these guys. That's crazy. So I had an itinerary. Yeah. And um, uh, so the lucky thing is I did have that three weeks. And I asked my friend, I said, can you just give me a current set list? So I watched as much YouTube as I could and and just uh really studied the songs and you know tried to get all the signature fills down and stuff like that. Cause they've been playing with the same guy for 18 years, you know. Yeah. So I'm like, okay, I, you know, I wanna I don't play like the guy, but I, I need to get those little hits and stuff like that. And some of those songs are so famous that people know the drum parts, you know. So yeah. Yeah, I don't yeah. want I don't want to miss that. You know, I mean, you know, now I have some of my own flavor in it after a long time, but you know, right. It, I, you know, a friend of mine always said, like, learn the stuff as close to the record as you can and then put your sauce on it, you know? And I'm like, and that's been really good advice because some guys, they just go in with their own thing and they don't really, you know, so it's, it's always good just to nail what's there and then, yeah. uh, then expand on it. But anyway, um, so, uh, yeah, so it was kind of crazy. So I was like, well, I guess it's my gig, but then the guy who subbed for me, there was, I was hearing rumors that he wanted the gig. I'm like, well, maybe they should just give it to him because he's already done the gig, you know? Right. And then, <laughs> and then people, it, it was, you know, it was flying around LA. I was hearing from friends and, and different people. They're like, when's the auditions? I said, nah, there ain't no auditions. <laughs> you know, like, right. why isn't there auditions? I'm like, well, I don't know because this is not music school, you know. Because this is like who you know. This is like just a friend recommending somebody, and and it's about being cool, man. It's about the other twenty two hours of the day that you're hanging out. You know mm-hmm. that was maybe more important on this gig than being a great player. You know, so um, and my friend just knew my personality, you know, and 
So he knew I could cover the plane and, and I could cover the hang. And I think that's why there probably was an audition. So I go down and they book five days of rehearsal. And after the second day, they said, we're good. So um, that was a real compliment. That's you know, awesome. Yeah, that I they were just they were comfortable in those two days. They didn't need the five days. But then then we did like a month tour of Canada. And that was but I still looked at it as an audition, you know. Mm -hmm. I still looked like of course they weren't married to me, you know. I mean, and it wasn't it wasn't till a couple months into that gig that, you know, the manager came up to me and was kind of like, you know, I want to give you this and I want to give you that and you know contract you for this. And, you know, it wasn't etched in stone. And so I look at every night as an audition, <laughs> you know, it's like, yeah. you know, in a couple of weeks, I got to go play with them. I got to kick some ass, you know, I got to be mm -hmm. in shape or, you know, whatever it is I have to do, I got to be ready. So, um, you know, I, I looked at it that way, but yeah, it was, it was, it was funny, man. I was, it, you kind of learn the the scavengers that are out there in LA when they're like, yeah. where's the audition? That's not fair. And I was like, are you happy for me that I got a gig? You know, yeah. Like, like yeah. Well, it, misery and, loves company sometimes too. Yeah. And it's like, I don't, I just never, I barely ever did any auditions. Um, well, I mean, actually up to that point, I had done quite a bit with Josh and Colby and stuff, but, but I mean, most of my life growing up, it was all like, you know, through friends and who, you know, and stuff like mm -hmm. that. And, um, and I'm fine. I mean, I just hope that's the way the rest of my life continues because, you know, I have great friendships with a lot of great musicians and, you know, um, it, I, I'd rather get recommended by gigs like that. I mean, to audition, I mean, I can't even imagine auditioning now. I mean, I would if it was something I was mm -hmm. interested in. and But, you know, most auditions now, I think at my age or with people that are kind of more established, it'd just be like, hey, man, they just want to jam and check things out. But the right. cat, the cattle call thing. I mean, I stopped going to those years ago. I mean, yeah. I think the last one was Colby, and that wasn't even that too. There wasn't that much cattle there, you know. It was, uh, it, well, it was about 15, 15 people, you mm -hmm. know, which is pretty. That's a lot, and fifteen LA drummers is pretty damn intimidating. It was yeah, there's a lot of firepower there. Yeah, and I was like, sure. and I was way older than everybody else in the band too. <laughs> so there was like, <laughs> you know, you know, what about the 25 year old guy? Who looks like Brad Pitt. Maybe you want him. <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> you know. So I mean, you know, you just never know what your, what the criteria is. I, and I, I'm convinced there's no such thing as a good audition. I've never had a, a good audition, even though I've got, yeah. even though I've gotten the gig. Just a less worse one. Just Maybe. a less worse one. There's just there's just this nervousness. There's this uh, weird. You feel like you're half the player you are. Yeah. You're just. It's such an icky, uncomfortable feeling. Um, and maybe just everybody else had that feeling too. So I ended up getting the gig. You know, because I never feel. It's just such an odd. No matter how much you studied the songs, it's just it. It's like that thing when you're like you're in a room with people you don't know, and it's hard to look people in the eye. You know, yeah. and so that, that's why auditions just never seem that way. So if it was to be something like, Hey man, you know, it's going to like, you know, check out a couple guys and it's not a cattle gall that, that there's not like five people waiting outside. And you know, that, that seems more organic and, and, and those are always worth doing too, because I've definitely done auditions where I might've been the number two guy. 
um, because they just checked out a few guys and then they go with this other guy. And then a month down the road, that guy doesn't work out or he moves on to something else. So they call you, you're the number two guy. So, right. Right. Um, so, but yeah, that seems like such a long time ago. And, uh, luckily <laughs> the, the Google dolls thing wasn't that way. Uh, I would have done it. I mean, I would have auditioned, you know, I'm not against it, but, uh, I still sure. kind of joke like, man, I was, it's kind of too old at that time to audition, <laughs> but you know, it just depends, you know, if you're, if you're well-published, if you got a good background, if people can like check you out and I, I don't have like an obnoxious amount of, um, content out there online or anything like that. I should have more, but, um, mm-hmm. that does help. That definitely helps, uh, you know, that, that people can check you out in any way they want to. Um, but I think most of it is just, it's definitely through word of mouth. I mean, that definitely is the, the no matter how good your, your, your stuff looks online, it, it really is about that recommendation. It's about that guy that's, that's associated with that camp and, and says, yeah, man. And he's, he's good to hang with and he's really funny and he's, you know, you know, he's, uh, whatever, you know, yeah. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. you know, and not, that doesn't always work out. You know, your personality still could clash. You, nobody can guarantee somebody's uh, chemistry with another person, mm-hmm. but they can, they can try their best and they can get a pretty good idea. And this was a lucky situation where all those elements, the plane, the hang, um, the worldviews, uh, all, all that stuff. And, um, and just the, the time that the space everybody gives each other, you know, nobody's like, yeah. it doesn't, you know, I've heard of some gigs that are just like, if you don't go out till four in the morning with everybody, you know, you're not part of the hang. And I mean, those yeah. guys are, these guys are legendary rock star partiers. And like those days are over, you know? Yeah. <laughs> and, and so we're just chill and every, I don't have a family, but I have a wife, but I mean, they all have families and, you know, they, they, they have so much respect for that and have the families come out on the bus and stuff like that. Like they're, they're more in that groove, you know, yeah. and then they just tell their legendary stories and we just laugh our asses off, you right. know, you know, back in the nineties, just like, you know, being drunk on stage and stuff. So it's like, right. <laughs> so it's like a good place to be for me, you know, and much as I would have enjoyed being there with, in those times with them, you know, it's like, I can kind of just chill and yeah, um, it's just all about being a better band and I like it continuing good music and then, and then just keeping the legacy alive and, yeah. The playing those hits well that people still come out, you know. So what do you guys have planned for uh for I get I mean maybe there's a little bit at the end of the year but are you guys touring in 2022? We are touring a lot in 2022. Yeah. yeah. Nice. We have um um we have uh a whole summer tour about it keeps getting longer, but it's about 3 months long, which is longer than we usually go. Um and uh and this was a tour that was supposed to happen in 2020 and uh, mm. a lot of the same venues so now it's been expanded upon and uh, we decided not to do it last summer it was still kind of iffy and um, we did some festivals this year so we kind of got you know our beaks wet again and and uh you know just did some like random outdoor shows that paid well and like summer fest in Milwaukee and um a few things like that um, but what we did for several months of this year is, uh, we made a new record. Um, and that's, um, 
geez, we probably recorded about 20 tracks. It's enough for two records. So did you record those remotely or were you, were you doing them? I actually did them in person. Um, I actually went to uh, Dreamland Studios in Woodstock. Um, oh, cool. Which Jerry Murata owns. And that's a whole nother story in itself. Yeah. But I can uh, imagine the hang with him. And then Tony uh, Levin lives down the street. That's a, oh, man. a dream hang. Yeah. And uh, yeah. so uh, no, I'll call you privately. We'll talk about that sometime. I like that. But yeah, uh, I want to hear that. But uh, I love, I mean, I love, I've had Jerry and Rick both on and they're both like two of my favorite drummers. So. Oh yeah. Just, yeah, it was, it was a totally, that was a bonus to the whole thing, but we just happened to be at his studio and uh, we did it there because, uh, it was close to the, the main guys in the band. It was closer to their home so they could zip home on the weekend. And then we kept it really tight. It was just before we had the access to the vaccination. So we had a really tight camp um, of guys who, you know, we could keep the COVID thing. We're like living mm-hmm. on the property in the woods. And then we would just like have an assistant go out and get food. And then we would like cook there. So we had this kind of like, let you know, like COVID was still kind of rocking. We actually got, we all got vaccinated while we were there because I was there for nine weeks. And, oh, wow. Uh, so we did a lot of recording. Um, I did a lot of the keyboards actually because our keyboard player was still in LA doing stuff. And then he was going to come in later because we were trying to keep the size of people down to a real minimum, just like an engineer right. And John and Robbie and like maybe me and maybe the guitar player. And then he would go away for a while. I would come back, you know, kind of thing. So -hmm. we kept it very tight. But the way they record, they just kind of, we had, you know, Jerry's studio is this big church. And we just had everything ready to go. We had like three drum sets. We had percussion. We had, you know, a B3. We had all these quirky keyboards. We had analog synths. We had three pianos all mic'd up. You know, we had to bring mm-hmm. in some of our equipment just to have more mics. So we would just get a song, an idea, like Craig, run over and just bang on a C chord on the piano. Or, you know, um, we were all, it, it wasn't just like, let's all play together. It was all, we were just kind of constructing these songs one by gotcha. one and like building the tracks up. So um, it was exciting for me because- you know, I was, I had never played a Mellotron before. <laughs> so like, right. I was like, wow, this, awesome. is, this is fun, you know? So, um, so that album is kind of, uh, that kind of fattened up the year a bit uh, as mm-hmm. far as doing stuff. And uh, I was really fortunate to be a part of it. And so that's kind of being, the finished touches are happening with that. So the goal is to get that out in the spring and nice. then do all the promo for it, which will, you're, you know, these days with the way albums sell, you're actually putting out your record to promote your summer tour. Mm-hmm. And not just the so, other way around. <laughs> not the other way around. Exactly. So your summer tour, you know, and it kind of gives whatever the album's called, you know, you call the tour that, you know, the typical thing, you know, but you mm-hmm. always hope that the album catches on in some way. And, and they have so many, you know, they get songs and movies and commercials and stuff like that. So, right. you know, even if, records don't sell the way they used to it's like they get a lot of mileage um out of their newer music as well and Mm -hmm. uh and some of those songs you know even the ones that don't get on the radio become these fan favorites that you play live and you know you 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 play to your your crowd you know so it's still worth making new music and not just relying on the hits yep um so it's exciting they they just love doing it they just still love to be out there doing it and they're they're just they're a band you know they're 
a full-on band. Nobody's like going to become an actor or <laughs> do some kind right. of side hustle. <laughs> they just, these guys have been doing it for 30 years. And it's like, yeah, we, we, we play, they're like an all American band, you know, they just, we'll, yeah. we'll, we'll play the opening of an envelope, you know, all over the place, you know? It's, yeah. And I like it. And uh, it's really good. And it's been, I've been so fortunate because it's, you know, it's been about eight years now for me. And, uh, it allowed me to leave LA like we talked about in the beginning and, and still have a, an LA kind of job. And, um, mm-hmm. that's so, awesome, man. Yeah. So yeah, no, I was just really lucky to know the guitar player. And, yeah. uh, but you know, the skill is that I'm still on the gig after eight years. So, you know, whether there was an audition or not, you know, yep. so, um, yeah, but, um, it's great. And then over the pandemic, I, you know, built a, a home recording studio so I am able to do remote tracks. Do remote tracks and all that. Well, the great thing about Portland too, I never did it in LA because I always had a place to go. I always had like a buddy's studio. I said, I'll give you the drums. You work the computer. And now um, with the pandemic hitting, I was like, you know, even when that hit, there was remote stuff I had to do. And my buddy had to give up his studio that I would go over to here in Portland. And he's like, dude, you have a basement. And that's the thing I'm going to say. We have basements here. We don't have them in California. So if I was to do my own studio in California when I had a house, I would have spent 20 grand soundproof in the garage, um, which some of my friends in LA have had to do. Mm-hmm. But having a basement, I, I mean, I treated the room just so it sounds good, but I didn't soundproof anything. Right, right. And besides the neighbor next door that's never there, you can't really even hear me because when you're submerged you cancel like 50 percent of that sound right away so it's been great i mean i have it's a little concretey in here but i mean i have amazing mics and you know my friend that i work with is an an incredible engineer and uh you know we we've just dialed in you know really nice stuff you know i mean i got so i've been i've done tracks for you know a couple major records from here it's been That's really awesome. been really exciting, you know. And uh, you know, I, I don't pimp it out too much. Um and uh, you know, I, I kind of want it to be word of mouth, but you know, I, yeah. I should probably do a little more pimping out on Instagram because <laughs> people will, you know, they'll say, Hey, hey, you can you can track from home, you know, stuff like yeah. that. So Yeah, of course. I said, as long as I can get an intern over here. <laughs> there you go. You know, I'm 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 not a, a natural like some of my friends are. They can just me like, neither. Yeah, so it's like me neither. I just want to play drums. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I don't want to edit takes together and stuff like that. But I, I'm slowly learning how to do that stuff. You know, I don't blame you though. Yeah, I don't, I don't want to do that stuff either. I know. So where where is the best place for people to to find find you? Is is Instagram the place or the Insta- website or yeah? Where? Instagram's kind of the only place. So it's just okay. Craig McIntyre drummer. Um, the McIntyre's M-A-C not M-C so Craig McIntyre drummer yeah Instagram's kind of the only thing that I do Um, but I'm going to start putting you know some more stuff say like up on YouTube I did do a promo for my studio that I've been meaning to put up just a a little minute clip of uh, what I can do here so um, without getting without turning into a commercial studio but just saying hey I can do remote I can do remote tracks. I mean, there's just so many guys have a lot of that stuff dialed in. I don't want to impose like, hey, check out my basement. You know, I just want to say that I'm available to do 
you know, um, world-class tracks. You know, I, I mean, I feel confident enough and, and I work with people enough that it's like, and I'm looking at how other people are doing it too. It's like, yeah, I, I, I got what, I got what they got, you know? Yeah. But, you yeah. know, some people just have a whole different vibe, a whole like, you know, really nice wood studio or they got, you know, nice camera work and all that stuff. And it's like, yeah, you know, I don't, maybe someday <laughs> like you said i just want to play the drums right i just want to play the, i just want to play the drums you know it's like you know that that's it you know yeah nice. but, you know so i mean there's a lot of other stuff going yeah, i mean my band keeps me so busy and then you know my wife's got her own business that i help her with and uh you know so there's enough going on <laughs> yeah for sure for sure you well know? I appreciate you taking time out of your your schedule to uh to come on the podcast man it's it, it's been great chatting with you and and hearing the story and and just hearing I I love hearing just the way that that you know you hustled and and worked your ass off I mean like most people too but I li- I like the constant the constant work ethic I mean that's like that's how I grew up and and uh that's how I, I've always approached things so it's always fun to talk to someone else who did the same I think it's the east coast thing I you think know? you might be I right think, you know and we had that you were kind of in that tri-statey kind of area that mm-hmm. and, and being in New England it was the same for me it was like if you're a professional musician in Boston you're working in Vermont you're working in Maine you're working in New York <laughs> you're working right. in Connecticut Rhode Island you know you you're just you have that work ethic of just you know just doing it and doing it you know mm-hmm. all the time and and uh yeah i think i took that out to LA i mean i it wasn't um you know, it wasn't that, you know, hey, I'm just going to lay back, you know? <laughs> like, right, right. It's like, no, I'm going to be aggressive, you know, without pushing people over. But, mm-hmm. you know, I'm 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 eager to go. So I think that eagerness maybe got me in front, you know, a little yeah, bit. Because sure. that was just, that was just what you did on the East Coast. You know, it's like you're mm-hmm. packing up your drums and snow and that, that'll that'll leave hair on your chest, you know, like, <laughs> when you go somewhere else. So yes, it will. Know. Yeah. <laughs> well, but, I, but I did plenty of gigs that I wouldn't post on Facebook. I'll tell you. <laughs> <laughs> There's a whole lot of them. And I think people have to really, you know, going back to what we we're talking about before, you should be doing a lot of stuff that you're not going to be bragging about on social media. Exactly. <laughs> you know, exactly. Like you, that's when you know you're working, when you just, you're just doing all kinds of different stuff and that, and not everything's a little victory, you know, where, yeah. you know, not every, exactly. not everything's going to be spectacular. And this is one, I, I know you got to go, but this is one last thing I want to say is that there's, I know a lot of musicians out there that do get a little like, I'm not going to do that or I'm above that or that's cheesy or that's that, that's bullshit. I think it's really imp- what I learned especially when I moved to LA and this is what musicians should know if they're going to move to a hub is that almost every gig has a redeeming quality. And I have mm. gotten some of the greatest connections and gigs out of some of the worst gigs I ever did. And that's a really important thing cuz there's so many people out there that say no. You know, and they and they they put themselves in a box, or they 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 feel like, well, I have this high standard, and I'm only going to do this kind of gig, and I'm only going to play with these people, and I'm not going to put in the work for this bullshit I don't believe in. And I think that's a wrong way to go. I mean, sometimes stuff is just so bad, you gotta you gotta you know do the right thing. But mm-hmm. I think it's really important to you know 
to to do that because you'll you'll meet people that change your life and and then you'll have that crappy gig that you did together and it's just something you look back on laugh you yeah. laugh at and i have many situations like that it's like man we met on that weird gig with that singer that was drunk and like all that stuff but all of a sudden you met your bass player buddy or your guitar player buddy on that gig and then he happened to be the guy that produces tv shows and you're his drummer now i mean i have you know a handful of stories like that so yeah you know Yep. And then it also gets back to the thing, play live, play play as much as you can. Those are the opportunities to do it. If it's a crappy church gig or a bar gig, or that is going to shape you. That's going to get you out there, not playing by yourself on Instagram. It's like, yeah. that's, it, that's, a, you know, that's a dime a dozen now. Um, so that's- I, that, I totally agree. Yeah. So that's, I, I, I always try to say that, that there's a redeeming quality out of every gig, especially in places like LA. You know, I mean, yeah. in Boston, a crappy gig was a crappy gig, but, <laughs> but in LA, there was really no such thing as a crappy gig because there's somebody as good as you, if not better on that same crappy gig, just trying to like get ahead. Yep. And that's, man, that's I a, agree. Yeah. That's a really cool thing. So that's so true. So true. Dude, I appreciate this so much. I appreciate you again, taking the time. I know you're, you're a busy man. So it has been an honor and a pleasure to, to have you on and, and to share your story. I'm super honored to be on this amazing podcast. I mean, it's just, it, you got everybody here and it's just, I was scrolling through it the other day and I'm just like, Oh my God, I think I only <laughs> scrolled halfway through, you know, and uh, yeah, you're doing an amazing job. I just love it. Yeah. Well, thank you. It's been a labor of love for sure. So absolutely. Yeah. Well, I uh, I hope to see you in person soon. Like I said, next time you're in LA, please let me know. I'm sure it'll be pretty soon. Yeah. There you have it. The one and only Craig McIntyre. And you can find the show notes by going to drummersresource.com forward slash session 640. And let me know how you like this new mic. Again, I'm using a new Shure SM7 and uh, I dig it. And you know, I think it's uh, I think the, the other mic that I use sounded really good, but I like this one as well. So I'd be curious to hear your feedback. Let me hear or let me know how it how it sounds, excuse me, in your car or in your headphones or wherever else you listen to the podcast. So hit me up on social. Give me some feedback on that. And other than that, that's all I got. So until the next podcast, keep drumming. Thank you so much for listening. And I'll be talking to you soon. Peace. Drummer's Resource is produced by Revoice Media. Executive producer Nick Ruffini, that's me. Edited by Justin Thomas. Video editing by Tomas Shannon. And graphic design by Catherine Wade. For more music and entertainment podcasts, be sure to check out revoicemedia.com. <laughs>